And good morning, Gary. And good morning, Jonathan, once again from Reno, Nevada. We're here in yes. the home of smoke. The home of smoke and strange mm-hmm. neon-covered machines. and you know, It should be science fictional. Someone was telling me that how could you not be happy in an enormous casino in Reno and imagine you would be happy on a space station <laughs> out in the farther reaches of wherever, and you're going, well, because people don't necessarily create all that damn noise. Yeah, and also the the light shows from the 1970s, the fashion sense of the 1970s, oh, preserved 40 years later. In- yep. And we're joined by Kim Stanley Robinson. Good morning, Stan. Uh, good morning, Jonathan. Hello, Gary. Hello. How are you enjoying your time in Nevada? Well, it's Worldcon, and I always love Worldcons. It's uh, the bang for the buck. It's an embarrassment of riches. Walk by dear friends because you've got to go see somebody else who's also a dear friend, and it happens repeatedly, but the community um, convening like this and seeing each other's faces and, and it going on year after year so that it's like a small town that has been exploded out across time and space and then uh, Brigadoon-like mm-hmm. once a year it reconvenes. And it's, it, is, it is a science fiction experience. Yeah. We were talking to Jo mm-hmm. Walton uh, a couple of days ago. And she was saying what it really is is you, you, know, like, you get five days of Worldcon and then the sixth day happens 365 days later. Yeah. And it just exists in its own timeline. So you, know, sort of, you could imagine Bob Silverberg has almost had a year in Worldcon. Oh, and, yeah. and and you are you're picking up you sort of you come to, you know we left Melbourne last year and you pick up a conversation here mm. and next year it'll be wherever it met Chicago I think your neck of the woods and we'll go go to there so that's the most positive comment about Worldcon that I've heard because usually by this stage in the proceedings people are saying well, I'm saying at least I'm exhausted I've you know, I've, I've been eating too much. I've, I start thinking of all the friends I haven't had a chance to see, mm-hmm. um, or, or the people who, three days after I go home, I will find out they were there, and I never made that connection. That happens a lot. It's amazing that you can be in a one hotel, or three hotels, mm-hmm. with um, good friends over a period of four or five days, and never even see them at right. all. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, a, it's an embarrassment of riches, but... Yeah, uh, the, all conventions go on a little bit too long. I, I can handle it for about 24 hours, and then I go into endurance mode. Mm-hmm. It'll be really fun for 24 hours. And then just a matter of make sure that you see friends and, right. uh, and get get home as soon as you can. Yeah. And, of course, this is really set, in, in a sense, in your kind of country, isn't it? I mean, this actually, is, this is not, not yes. Reno itself, obviously, but... The Sierra Nevadas. And That's right. This is a, actually Reno sits in a really beautiful bowl high on the eastern side of the Sierra, so in the rain shadow. And um, the Truckee River, which is the outflow from Lake Tahoe, a major river for the basin and range territory, mm-hmm. comes pouring through this basin, and it is absolutely beautiful. Yeah. Now Reno wrecks that. It's <laughs> a stupid, uh, yeah. you know, American West a big city. Uh, not as bad as. Phoenix or Tucson in terms of social stupidity, but because of the gambling and the whole Reno yeah. reputation, it is a kind of a, uh, a period piece and a, and a comic parody of itself. And when it, we were driving over here uh, from San Francisco with uh, Ellen Clages, uh, we, we stopped in Auburn, mm-hmm. which uh, which is a very interesting town because you have a sense that this is a this town is still laid out in the in the pre automotive uh, design. Oh, yes, that's right. And it, even though it has tourist trap shops and that sort of thing and it, you get a sense of how that space fits into the landscape in a way that 
this one doesn't. This seems to have been, as you say, just slapped down on and uh, yeah. leveled. You know, those Sierra foothill towns, they do not have a, anywhere any flat ground to build a t- proper town. And every mm. Sierra foothill town has terrible feng shui. Mm. It's tucked into I'm a sure, little yeah. valley. It's in shade all day. You can't tell where downtown is. You can't tell that there's any neighborhoods around it. It doesn't have the sense of a Midwestern small town. It's more a jumble of mining shacks mm. that turned into modern buildings. And they're all small and weird. But Reno has this big bowl, so it can be yeah. a proper city. It can be platted. It has a big flat space, and then a Sierra's around it. It's got great feng shui, but it's just the socially, it's mm. ridiculous. Yeah, yeah. And of course, since you know, speaking of you know, continuing conversations, when we last spoke in Melbourne, you were in the middle of a new novel, twenty three twelve. Were you launching out into it at that stage? Yeah, that's right. <clears throat> And as sometimes happens with, you know, I've noticed with your books, they, each each one seems to, to some degree summarize major parts of what's come before. So there's 2312, which we'll talk about, which seems to pick up on themes that we've seen in earlier short stories, in uh, The Memory of Whiteness, and on and through, through parts of the Mars trilogy. That seems to be the, you know, the kind of pattern yeah. that happens. Well, I, I uh, earlier on in my career, and really as a young science fiction writer, I had mm. this mm, story space that was the solar system, mm. some few hundred years from now, that had been thoroughly um, socialized and, and uh, colonized, and I had various um, it, uh, inventions that were mm. culturally shared at the time by science fiction that came also out of the O'Neill colonies of the early 70s mm. where you get inside of a spinning structure you have some artificial gravity some protection from um, cosmic rays and it, it seemed like a workable uh, realist future in this in the style of building on what Asimov did in the mm. 40s with the Lucky Star novels and his whole mm. uh, the, the solar system <coughs> as a realist space opera space yeah but these were early works of mine, and, and uh, I moved off in different directions, especially after the Mars books were done. Mm. And there's been so much that has happened since in terms of our sense of the future. Um, genetic engineering and biomimicry, the idea that we could be rather long-lived, which I already had explored in Ice Hand. Mm, sure. I thought, I can come back to this stuff with all of the new things that we've learned and, and postulate that we can begin to tweak ourselves a little bit and become somewhat altered creatures. And then you have also the interesting questions that I had never explored before about artificial intelligence. Mm -hmm. Once you get quantum computers and you've got these uh, almost unbelievably fast computing times, if the algorithms were right, you can begin to think, and I've never really believed this before, but you can begin to think about artificial consciousness Mm -hmm. uh, rather than just really fast um, computation. So all these things began to make me think, I can come back to all this material and go back out into the solar system again. And you can even Mm. include climate change. Mm. The Earth could be quite a jungly planet with a much higher sea level. Mm -hmm. And it does not necessarily mean that we couldn't uh, inhabit space because our technological powers are growing so fast that one of the few things that we won't be able to do is save the Earth from this next century's warming. Mm. That may be beyond us, but other terraforming projects where you can slam comets into the planet and mm. such like that. That might be possible. So I wanted to present this. Uh, essentially, it's a kind of a new and developing vision of what the, the future could bring. And, and it seemed like I, I had an opportunity for new stories. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, it certainly is a large canvas uh, 
to be working on. One of the things I, I found myself <clears throat> when I was uh, beginning to read it, asking a different question, because it has, at, at the beginning, I'm not, but at the beginning of this has the grand tour kind of sweep visiting the solar system. Yeah. And one of the things that I think you, you probably do a little more consistently than almost anybody else is answer this question. My, my question when I was a kid would have been, wow, how, how, can we do, how can we build these machines and where are they? Now my question is, where do these quadrillions of dollars come from to do this sort of thing? Um, and you did address that. There was, uh, and, and you addressed it quite a bit in the Mars trilogy. Right. But, but I think one of the questions, I think that's one of the shifts in our consciousness of science fiction. We just assumed that if some vast new uh, technology were available to us, we would just do it. And now we've grown up in an economy where we're thinking, well, it would be nice to do that, but where's the money? Well, um, it, that is a good question, and I, I've actually, in this novel, tried to think about economics a, a, a little more explicitly than uh, science fiction uh, often does in mm. space opera, for yeah. instance, yeah. where you don't really think about it much. But I tried to think about that in, a, in the history and, and imagine a kind of post-capitalism, or what comes next, or how does capitalism morph mm. into some subsequent economic order, because... It is true that if you use capitalist accounting, it often looks like there isn't the money to do these things. Mm -hmm. but, it, but what there is is a, a big human population and a lot of scientific expertise, a lot of engineering heft and power to uh, manipulate the environment. Mm -hmm. and in combination, means that uh, if there isn't the money to do it, it's more that the accounting is bizarre than that there isn't the human beings and the technological power mm -hmm. to do these things. So uh, my working uh, idea was that we actually do pay for the stuff we're most interested in, like, say, life extension or mm -hmm. health, mm -hmm. uh, genetic engineering. And then getting off planet is a challenge to capitalism proper. So you think of, well, nations do it, international groups do it. And once you get the technological ability to get stuff off this planet fast, so you need space elevators. Yeah. And once you postulate that... <clears throat> as a driver, uh, then suddenly it all begins to uh, make sense even in economic terms. It's simply capital investment and the place where there's the best return. And money just mm -hmm. flows like gravity and downhill to the rate of best return. If that happens to be uh, space, then uh, that's what will happen. So it's a combination of me just following ordinary capitalist dynamics mm -hmm. and what people want to do with, with uh, surplus value. And then also thinking, well, there's there's going to be uh, different ways of accounting that are more cooperative and are more uh, uh, communal, communally driven. So once again, it's a utopian novel mm -hmm. because it makes some of these assumptions that people will do the smart thing. And so right. now that's looking very <laughs> utopian. That's That in itself is now a utopian statement. <clears throat> what I find that might be t tangential is that it's a different approach to evoking a sense of wonder. And by that I mean... In a certain stripe of science fiction, you just make everything bigger, and everybody goes, wow. This is the sort of thing, and although it's completely unlike it, I had a similar emotional reaction to the opening portions of C.J. Cherry's Down Below Station, oh, yeah. where she plots out a logical, believable path towards an almost a sense of wonder outcome. You know, So we can sit here, and in the case of 2312, it's... Yes, bad things happen between 20, 
11 and 2100, but we evolve more technology, we see business reasons to, to go forward, and then suddenly we're smashing comets into other planets to alter their atmospheres, mm-hmm. and all that stuff, mm-hmm. that kind of grand sort of uh, you know, solar system mechanics is enormously sort of sense of wonder evoking, I think. Um, it did cross my mind, is it a... Co- I, because I, I'll be, be honest and say at this point, mm-hmm. I'm just past the halfway in the no- point in the novel. Is it a, a different perspective when you go to, say, terraforming Venus to the some of the, some of the objections to terraforming at all that maybe we saw in the Mars trilogy where you're sitting there going, but hang on, this is a pristine environment and we should preserve it. Right. And there's something remarkably you know, attractive and um, responsible and understandable about that emotion that says, no, well, hang on a minute, we shouldn't sully uh, Venus. And I know there's some touching on it on some on some of the uh, the moons where it's sort of like, well, no, you know, sort of we shouldn't sort of break through this layer of the ice and um, spo- spoil that environment and you know, put, you know pollute it because there may or may not be life that kind of thing. Well, they actually discover life there, mm-hmm. so well, yeah, at yeah. that point, then they think they have to sequester it. This is Europa. Yeah. Europa and Enceladus uh, are in the Saturn system. Both have big big oceans, and so for that matter, does Ganymede. Mm. So these these oceans are big and they're liquid, so they're mm-hmm. warm enough to handle life. And so now the whole um, astrobiology community is very excited at this possibility. Mm-hmm. So I decided to play all these things as if they're going to come up uh, aces when you're playing, uh, <laughs> taking the Taking your everything comes up roses in this particular scenario. There's life on Europa. There's life mm-hmm. on Enceladus. There's but I think one of the things that picking up on what uh, Jonathan said that it seems to be a consensus in in this society that uh, that life is sacrosanct. You can't mess around with uh, an environment. So there uh, there are certain you know moons that you simply mm-hmm. are off limits. Mm-hmm. But anything else, so life becomes the defining. Uh, feature between what's exploitable and what's not. Well, uh, that's right, and in at least this particular scenario, my prediction, I mean, 300 years out is a long yeah. time, and our mm-hmm. powers think about 300 years back and what we can do that, that we couldn't do 300 years ago, and of course it doesn't necessarily mean a straight-line extrapolation well, in no. the future. We may plateau out in certain ways, but if we get as powerful as we could, we could be out there bashing around, and I think there would be very few people that argue for the pristine nature of Venus, given that it's boiling hot lead and it's mm-hmm. an yeah. you know, unlivable place, that if you could blast that af- atmosphere off of there and turn Venus into a livable planet. Well, it's ninety percent Earth's size and gravity. You've yeah. got a second Earth. All this talk about getting in starships, which has recently yeah. been in the news, is uh, necessary when you've got a great little candidate for a sister Earth mm-hmm. right next door. Yeah. So uh, the terraforming community includes such visionaries, such um, whacked out <laughs> scientific. Uh, um, uh, space opera writers, but within the equations of terraforming, right. mm-hmm. uh, Paul Birch's papers, terraforming Mars quickly and terraforming Venus quickly, are are amazing uh, speculative documents. They're works of science fiction, but done in a non-fictional format, mm-hmm. which includes mm-hmm. the, the equations. So, yeah, once again, I've turned that card yeah. over and said, well, yes, they're going to blast that planet its atmosphere away and get to work at doing it quickly. Rather than 100,000 years, yeah. let's do it in 200 years. Yeah. And the plan is there. Mm-hmm. You, you shade Venus so that no sunlight at all hits it. It begins to drop like in temperature, like 5 degrees a year. You basically freeze some of the atmosphere down to the surface. It's a quite uh, talk about sense of wonder. Yeah, mm-hmm. very much. But uh, for yeah. my sense of wonder, following up what you were saying before, though, I thought that history itself creates in us a sense of wonder. When yeah. I think about the French Revolution, mm-hmm. when you think about um, uh, the Renaissance city states, that there is a sense of wonder at what humanity has done 
And if you carefully extend that forward and grant some premises 300 years from now, the, the history of the next 300 years is bound to be extremely dramatic because mm-hmm. we're wrecking this planet and, uh, and uh, getting close to tipping points to where we're not going to be able to unwreck it without some very clever terraforming, terraforming yeah. of Earth. And that's worth discussing. But what you can immediately see is that if you uh, grant a survival, that the 300 years, if you document the history, and I don't, obviously I can't give a detailed account of every year of the next sure. 300 years, but you can do a thing of big periods. Yes. You can begin to, and I have a historian character. One of the advantages of my format is that I can throw in a lot of things that are essentially, uh, supposedly texts of the various mm-hmm. times. And so I have a historian giving <clears throat> the periods that happen between now and then that a relatively detailed history of the next 300 years. So that's a little sense of wonder. Mm. And <clears throat> stylistically, there's a, it gives you an opportunity to do a lot of playing with Dos Passos kinds of insertions. And yes. I was looking at uh, uh, Stand on Zanzibar, <clears throat> which actually stands up pretty well. Yes, uh, and, and, and surprisingly well. I mean, considering the fact that we didn't have the information we're working on, but I don't think he, I don't think he was as optimistic as you're sounding. And I think a lot of, I think the consensus for science fiction in the last couple of decades is more like what Paolo Bacigalupi is doing, which yeah. is pretty grim. You're right. Uh, and yet, you still seem to believe in the future. You always have. Well, it's a, it's a, it's a, a matter of policy. Um, uh, in other words, it's a willed mm. optimism as a political statement uh, that since these uh, good futures are possible, we therefore should uh, envision them and, and advocate them, that even uh, talking about them is in a certain degree advocating them, mm. and that a certain amount of modern pessimism uh, flies in the face of medical advances, public health advances, public mm. safety advances, that this world is simply more orderly and safer than early 19th century, and that there has been progress, and it has often been scientific-slash-technological progress in the face of uh, feudal economics that are stupidly hierarchical and, and extractive and non-sustainable. So always a mix of utopian and dystopian mm-hmm. strands in, in fighting with each other. And, I, and it, as you point out, it's been my lifelong <coughs> career-long policy to try to emphasize the potential for positive futures. And it, it, it opens me up to um, accusations of, of naivete, uh, even mm-hmm. stupidity. But... Well. Um, uh, you know, what are you going to do? <laughs> <laughs> Is it a matter of you just simply s- say no to the despairing option of the dystopian future? Because yes, because we're a privileged people. I mean, yeah. this is mostly, mm-hmm. you know, white guys and middle mm-hmm. class and the world's uh, hierarchy, uh, the most privileged class, uh, moaning and groaning about the death of civilization when um, public health measures and their own doctors mean that they are in a much more comfortable life than human beings have ever been before. Mm-hmm. It's not appropriate response. Yeah. It's certainly, it's a little bit of fashionable, uh, a fashion of the intelligentsia to moan and groan and be pessimistic because then you look smarter you know I mean cynicism always looks like oh, well I've got it figured out it's a stance mm. I've got it figured out and it's never going to work people are too stupid in the mass well well it certainly is an excuse for inaction I suppose yeah. so you, you, fi- yeah. you figure you just can't fix the world and, yeah. uh, also it's a story that's been told so often before that if you're thinking of science fiction stories right. uh, I've got a newer story and it does come out of Dos Passos it can be a kind of realist portrait of a community so it isn't like an individual hero or yeah. even it's not even very um, uh, I, I shouldn't say character based but it, is, it isn't it is deeply introspective literature Dos Passos he's saying this is what people no. do this is how they interact and it's a almost camera eye point of view like Hemingway 
um, except for the stream of consciousness strand within the narrative, which he also includes. Right. So he does a little of everything in that novel. The USA Trilogy is a tremendous novel. Um, I think, I th- I think mid century, by the time he got around to that, he was almost imitating himself, though. That's one yes. in 1950. And yes. I thought, at that point, okay, <clears throat> he invented this really good technique, and then decades later it became a shtick. He was no longer inventing well, that, it. Yes, and, and I read some interviews with him when he was an old man, and he said that uh, I, I gave up on the stream of consciousness strand uh, that was in the USA trilogy, but mm-hmm. not in mid-century, mm-hmm. on the belief that I didn't need it anymore. But now I'm thinking, uh, probably I did yeah, need it. Yeah, probably did. He's one of those writers like uh, uh, Lawrence Durrell, the Alexandria Quartet. Mm-hmm. I love that quartet, but before it and after it, there's nothing as good. That his uh, career is like a mountain top that mm-hmm. goes up and it goes down. And I think with Dos Passos, although I like uh, Manhattan Transfer and Three Soldiers, is moving up to the USA trilogy, and after that down into travelogues and travel writing. Uh, right, and getting spookily conservative in his old age. He really played it wrong politically. I think that's why he's not in the literary canon of American literature. He really USA should be taught in any survey course of American yeah. literature. Every graduate student who gets a degree in, in literature in, in the English language should have read the USA Trilogy, and they haven't. Mm. But he was very, very radical in the 30s, and he was very, very conservative in the 50s. And so both times he was on the wrong side of the fence right. in terms of <laughs> cultural opinion. Because the by that time the university had, had canonized modernism in the fifties, and mm-hmm. it was a liberal uh, uh, group of people, uh, counterculture to uh, Eisenhower conservatism, very liberal, and they, uh, for them, uh, those passages like Kessler or people used to even condemn Orwell for becoming a rightist, mm-hmm. which I think is very wrong. But you know that there was that group of, of people who got disgusted with Stalinism and yeah. Um, took a big one eighty, and uh, it didn't do his his uh, reputation any good at all. But Brunner used him very well. Stand on Zanzibar holds up well, like you said. I, I wrote an introduction for it and reread it, and that's what got me back to Dos Passos. Mm-hmm. It really helped me for this current novel, because I have absolutely, like Brunner, has stolen or used yeah. the Dos Passos format of stranding narratives of different kinds of text. Well, it's, it's, it's fun to read also, because it gives you a... I mean, it, makes a, it turns a novel into an anthology in a strange way. Uh, yeah. And there are bits of... Uh, uh, well, there, 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 there are bits that I've already read in, in, in 2312 that remind me of... Hmm, there was a classic story in the 50s, and I think it was by Alan E. Norris called Brightside Crossing. Uh, yeah, yeah. About, I mean, when people still thought you know, Mercury was tied to the But still, that was a classic hard science fiction setup. Somebody is trapped and have to, they have to cross the bright side of Mercury. Yeah. And that was one of those things I remember reading as a kid. It's not, probably not a great story. Uh, but it, it's that kind of sense of wonder where you just—it's a survival thing, and you read you read a lot of survival fiction. And I guess what I'm getting at is those little astounding type science fiction adventure stories can be woven in along with the oh, political sure. and economic and uh, yeah, it has to be <clears throat> the physical adventure of this solar system as something that I really was interested in playing in. Uh, I have people body surfing the rings of Saturn mm-hmm. because now we see that. Um, uh, Prometheus, the moon that is the inner shepherd moon of, of the Efring, uh, it pulls the Efring into braids and strands that we now have great photos of, mm-hmm. uh, even videos of, of the, the rings being pulled out like the wake in a, of a boat, and many people surf mm-hmm. the wakes of boats, and so you can surf the rings of Saturn, all these games, yeah. <laughs> but also the Encyclopedia Galactica yeah. that you would see, say, in Dune, that can be... 
pay attention to the, what's happened on the internet, that can be reinterpreted. It isn't mm. the Encyclopedia Galactica like the Encyclopedia Britannica. Mm. It's more the internet. You link, 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 different yeah. kinds of text, different mm. sources of information. Also, a surfeit or a glut mm. of information kind of rolling over you, and as soon as you get the information you want, you're certainly not going to read on. You're going to click yeah. something new and different. So I was playing with that, and what a... What a pleasure, because it, it not only reflected our current reading lives, but it also made it a chance for a kind of prose poetry. Sure. Where as mm -hmm. soon as I have the information in a sentence that I need, I chop the sentence off, and then a little joke is being made, because you know what the rest of the sentence was going to say. You don't even have to have it there. Is that going to be... How's the typography going to work out on something? They're going to leave it like that. They've okay. been very good about that. Good. So a lot of sentences will just disappear in midair, but <laughs> then as you begin to understand the rules of that right. section, the extracts, and they'll be called extracts, Extracts, right. not abstracts. I made a mistake there. But uh, these extracts will become then a game you can play because you can certainly fill in the whole rest of the paragraph being a science fiction oh, yeah. reader. Of course. And science fiction readers are extremely canny and they like these games. Yes. So, and I guess the other thing is that <clears throat> that approach allows you to, without slowing your story, just increase the conceptual density of the book and the, um, the picture of the solar system that you're laying out before us yeah. in a really s sort of clear and effective kind of a way. Also, I get to play a kind of game with myself and my own reputation and my previous books. When you think about the Mars trilogy, mm -hmm. and one of the things you don't think is that there's a very swift-footed narrator. You know, those <laughs> books kind of, uh, they kill you with detail. And the narrator is willing to stop and say, okay, the next 20 pages, we're going to be thinking about what that rock means. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and uh, you're going to know the chemical composition of that rock by the time we're done with this. And uh, I've done that a lot. And, and I deliberately did that in the Mars books. That's what that narrator is supposed to be doing. And so some people find it very grating or just kind of slow and effortful. So I still like that information. I still want that much information, but I certainly don't want uh, that narrator anymore. I think people have been generous to um, mm. read the Mars books as happily as they have. They give it their effort. They m float it along by their own imagination. Well, and people are still doing it. I gather it's. I mean, it's. 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 I, I guess it's one of the handful of acknowledged classics from the last yes twenty or thirty years. In the sense that uh, people today, as you mentioned, people are still reading. Brunner, they're still reading the Foundation trilogy, and, and something that Jonathan and I have talked about. What what do we have in the last ten years that uh, you can expect people fifteen, sixty years from now to be reading? I mean, it's very, it's always striking to me to think that uh, that things like the Foundation trilogy are sixty years old now. Yeah, uh, yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And so, to some extent, they have survived. Yeah. Well, we're only just getting to the point chronologically where we can say. Red Mars, say, has survived. I mean, yeah. we were saying mm -hmm. earlier on, it'll be 20 years old to, uh, next year or the year after. Yeah, exactly. And 20 years is just, it's like just enough distance to go, no, that one isn't going, going to fall off mm -hmm. the radar. You know, it, it is now part of, an intrinsic part of the science fiction field and you can't understand it without it. Right. I am curious, I mean, is information density a deliberate artistic choice? Yes, uh, it is for me. I, I thought... Um, this thing that came in with Heinlein, and I've read your discussions about Heinlein, and uh, like anybody else, I've had to read him, but it, the style that he developed of, of, uh, with, with Campbell, but he, he was the leader here of implying the background, and you would have to read off the background from clues that he had very cleverly mm. inserted into the text, so that you don't have the stop the one scientist saying, you know, as you know, Dr. Mm -hmm. Asimov, this works this way, that that was uh, seen as a stylistic clunkiness from the 30s and from, yeah. uh, well, 
that's all very well, and it's an important lesson to learn, but I think that, uh, well, it's H. Bruce Franklin, in some of his criticism, argued that that actually was bad for science fiction because science itself is so expository that you need the ability to stop mm. from time to mm. time and say, let's discuss this this uh, this uh, real-world situation for a while, or this geology for a while, in my case. So I made a deliberate a choice to ignore the the running style sheet of science fiction as it was uh, going into the 80s, because right. it wasn't going to work for the story I wanted to tell. And I thought people would be all right with information as long as it was interesting. Mm. My word, mm. it, anything's all right if you can make it interesting. Yeah. So then the, the question becomes, can you do something that is sort of the equivalent of what nonfiction writers do? Can you make a, a story that isn't about uh, characters in the midst of drama and stage business? Can you still make that stuff interesting enough? And try to make a meld of all these things into a plot. Make it still a novel with this idea that the novel is polyphonic and, you know, like Bakhtin would say, mm. it's, a, it's a matter of many voices being uh, uh, braided together. And mm. I've taken that image of the novel to heart and, of course, it doesn't fit with something like Catcher in the Rye. The great first-person novels yeah, yeah. are not polyphonic precisely because mm. they're a character sketch and a good first-person novel is a great thing. You really feel you know that character in that world. But my approach, especially in the Mars books, was much more uh, polyphonic and I've, uh, I think now it's a method, and, and uh, it's something that I think I've gotten uh, better at uh, with uh, 2312, and, yeah. and now I can make it a game. I can uh, mm. try to be a little bit uh, lighter on my feet sure. as a uh, technical challenge. Yeah. So now I'm changing again. And, uh, the, in other words, the thing that I thought I was okay to do in the Mars books, mm. I don't even think it's okay to do anymore. I, I mean, mm. I shouldn't be writing more uh, monstrous trilogies. Yeah. Uh, it's it, it wouldn't be appropriate. It would be asking too much of me and of well, the yeah. <laughs> Is it, in a sense, pairing it back closer to the approach that you see in your short stories, which are very light-footed? I mean, uh, we worked together on The Best, the best Of uh, a couple of years ago, and I was struck by just how light-footed they were. Or, or, or in fact, as, as you see in, in your most recent story, which is the story you did as the original for The Best Of, yeah. which is a wonderful story and a very light-footed business-free kind of a piece, piece of work. Well, I would just like to be, have more compression. Yeah. Uh, I've, I've done the sprawling novel, and um, uh, I don't want to do more of them. I don't think uh, my readers should be uh, asked to do more of them. That the, there's, It would be better to have the, um, the information and the pleasures without the sprawl. Yeah. So it, uh, uh, it's almost like an accordion. Pacing, as I've talked to my students often about us, is, mm. is one of the crucial things of storytelling. And we talk about style and characters and theme and plot, but we don't talk about pacing anywhere near as much as we should. Mm-hmm. Because a sentence can describe, you know, he worked like a dog for ten years and never got anywhere. Mm. You sure. can write that sentence. Sure. And you can't do that in movies, for instance. Yeah. And then you can also say... You know, he got up, and the first thing that he thought of was, I need a cigarette. He walked over at the door. And in other words, you can do it yeah. for, like Proust, mm. 40 pages yeah. between when he wakes up and he looks out the window in a morning. It's the great start of, like, volume yeah. three of three yeah. of things pass. It's a tour de force of how slow can you go and still be interesting. Well, the, between these paces, I'd like to say that I, I have variety and that it's also form-following function. So that what I want out of a novel, I try to fit the form to that. And, mm-hmm. so, and I don't want that sense of uh, overwhelming reality detail that I had before. I want yeah. something that cuts to the chase that is a quicker story and a quicker narrator. 
And and I, you know, I'm not saying that I I can achieve that. This is actually more of a desire. Yeah. Uh, you have to think. Well, how does that work? And how can I change my style? And and try to keep making it interesting as a novelist. I've done a lot of novels now, and in a way, I'm well, thinking <clears throat> I I need I need new ways to make it new for both me and for my readers. Oh, when I was looking at the stories, going back to things like uh, the Lucky Strike, I think. For whatever reason, the first book of yours I read was probably The Planet on the Table. Uh-huh. And at that point, um, and for some years after that, you were like the official uh, go-to guy for alternate history mm. stories of one sort or another. Uh, and that's that, that, that part of your reputation seems to have just kind of been overshadowed by, uh, well, certainly by Mars, and then eventually yeah. uh, you know, the Science and the Capital trilogy. So you became, okay, you became the... Uh, and, and, and for that matter, in some of the other short fiction, a lot of fiction, uh, the John Muir piece, is what we used to call natural history writing, mm-hmm. which seems to be a genre that's almost entirely disappeared from literature, from American literature in general, but from the short story in particular. Uh, yes, I I, um, I think of myself now as a novelist principally, mm-hmm. and I don't. I think a, a short story form is exceptionally hard, uh, mm-hmm. like writing sonnets that seem naturally spoken. The, it's a it's a tough tough form, and I was better at it when I was younger, and thought of myself as a short story writer, and believed in the rules of short story writing mm. that of compression and of making a point and talking about an event that has an emotional weight to it despite right. its smallness. That's a, a very particular art form that I haven't kept up with, uh, and I've lost my sense of. Uh, being personally acquainted with how to do it, mm-hmm. and short story ideas don't occur to me. <clears throat> and when I try to write them, the I, well, since I don't have the ideas mm-hmm. in the first place, I don't even try to write them. I have novel ideas now. I, I have ideas mm-hmm. for situations or mm-hmm. historical periods. Or, I was talking to Tim Powers, who writes very little short story, yeah, and yeah. his reason was it's it's as much work as a novel because you have to make all the pieces fit together. And you're not going to make as much money as you do from a novel, so yeah. They, they uh, well, uh, one thing I will say is that isn't quite true about that is you work as hard, but you only work for two weeks rather than well. two years, and so there is a differential there. But the, conceptually, they're hard, and if you don't have the trick of the short story idea, which is finding an, a rather small incident that still has a good emotional weight to it when mm. you get to the end of the story, a good short story is rather an amazingly uh, compact little emotional device, mm-hmm. and uh, if you have to have the ideas in the first place. Yeah. And that's where I feel lacking in that Jonathan said, you know, write a new short story for the best of collection. And I'm thinking, well, I will if I can, but um, I don't have any ideas. And I was stuck for a long time for even one short story mm-hmm. ideas when I can yeah. immediately tell you I have maybe a half a dozen novel ideas. Yeah. Well, it's just the way it is. One of the, oh, I'm sorry. I was just going to say, is the Mars Trilogy a young man's uh Project? No, no, no. no? You know, it was. In my, I was in my forties. So we're mm-hmm. talking the Romans. You know, the Romans had this notion sure. that you kind of peaked at forty, uh, where it was a combination of youthful uh, uh, vigor and uh, mature intelligence and experience. And um, they may be right about that. I mean, I, I, uh, mm. it's a very. Uh, it can be a fruitful time in one's yeah. life, and I hope that it doesn't disappear with our modern drugs and exercise <laughs> regimes that you can be 40 for 30 years or so. <laughs> but I couldn't have written the Mars novels before that. Sure. And, uh, and uh, I certainly wouldn't want to write them after that. <laughs> I mean, you must find yourself, in, when you commit to a, <clears throat> I mean, a, almost a decade-long project that yeah. was Mars, yeah, yeah. to just want to tell different stories more quickly 
just because you have the stories to tell and at a certain point like you'll reach a point where there aren't more stories to be able to be told and you want to get as many told in as you can. Well, no, I never... To say, while I was working on the Mars novels, I didn't care about anything else. Yeah. I mm-hmm. didn't have any other ideas. I knew I had hit a, a, a real a vein for me. I'd hit the gold mine, and I, there was no point in leaving. Well, I finished Blue Mars. <laughs> Terry Bisson, a very close friend of mine, and a wonderful guy, he says, well, it's done. You're like a salmon. Now you can swim upstream and die. <laughs> <laughs> That's Terry. <laughs> I know. It's, it's, it is Terry. <laughs> And he was right in a way, but since we don't do that, then uh, I was kind of freed by that to say, okay, now uh, do other things that seem interesting and uh, keep keep uh, thinking. It. Even if you are uh, somehow post Mars, uh, post uh, um, your magnum opus, mm. it is almost a liberating thing to say, well, let's try an experiment that's hard, and if it fails, yeah. oh, whatever, mm. you know, we'll do another one. Sure. And I've gone on that way ever since. And I also got struck by uh, the Years of Rice and Salt, which was another uh, monstrosity that really um, uh, was a passion. And it was three years of my life only, or three and a half years. But during that time, I thought, God, how did I get into another one of these? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I'm just getting whipped by this now. And uh, it was... You have big ideas, but... And and Antarctica was... uh, was You you brought up the idea of terraforming Earth. I was quite a bit in that. Which was very compact, I guess. It seemed to me it was a very efficient, yeah. well, well-oiled well novel. Well, thank you for that. I, I, I like Antarctica very much. It only covers two months. It has a kind of a suspense mm. action mm. plot. Uh, mm. You know, it could be uh, movieized compared to most of my novels. Yeah. And uh, it was a joy to do because of Antarctica itself. The trip down there, the, it had a sort of a lucky star over right. it. And then all decisions... Like my Chinese uh, video landscaper telling the story of the classical expeditions yeah. from his angle, all of the decisions gave me uh, mm-hmm. an opportunity to tell the whole story of Antarctica. And last week, down at Google, one of the Googlers came up to me and he said, "Stan, you're the most famous person in Antarctica by a long shot because everybody who goes down there reads your book to find out what the whole place is about." Mm-hmm. So that was very That's beautiful. Cool. That only, but we're really only talking a few hundred people. Well, I was going to say, <laughs> yeah, you're not going to get. No, multiple it's, thousands of yeah. sales from Antarctica. No, no, no. It's never been a <laughs> the big Antarctic seller. gift shop has it in its <laughs> exactly. Well, that's exactly right, and it, <laughs> the, the, it sells in the scores per year. But uh, that's the whole uh, visiting population of Antarctica. Yeah, speaking part. speaking of that story, that uh, for the best of, of, of Stan Robinson. Yeah, you write more about music than any other science fiction writer. Yeah. Maybe so. Me, me and Jack Vance, yeah. uh, mm-hmm. another great lover of music and, and evocative when he does write about it in his other planets and they'll have a, suddenly a flute player will be out there. Yeah. He's, he's very good. But I do like to write about it. I, I've done it a little too much because I don't think uh, music... I don't think writing about music is very effective. Mm-hmm. I think it's naturally hampered by the, the differences in the two art forms. That and I've analyzed this before, but when you talk about music, you either get too technical or too misty metaphorical, and you never really capture what right. the yeah. lived experience of it's music. It's the most famous quote. Yeah. <clears throat> you know, yeah. It really is. So what I thought to myself was in that, I mean, when I got that short story idea, was, uh, as I said in the notes yeah. to the story, I was running to an iPod, and I could hear the 1942 Beethoven's Ninth, and I could hear the uh, electric intensity of that yeah. performance. Mm-hmm. And it seemed to me, these poor guys are just trying to leave this planet yeah. by, by way of music. And the the timpanist was um, imitating bombers going yeah, overhead. Yeah, that was I swear amazing. to God. I, I went back and looked at the YouTube video that yeah. I guess you gave me the link to it. Yeah. And yeah, if, you, if you're if you looking for that, if you realize that's there, then it's, uh, 
it's different from other performances, which is what you can do in, as yeah. a fiction writer. You can describe performances. Yes, that's right. Mm. That's right. And that's how you can write about music is to actually try to, by all the tricks, but to anchor them to a performance. Mm. And then mm. you have the chronology of a human event. You have a kind of plot. And so I was very pleased. I, I owe it to you and also uh, to Karen Fowler because Karen Fowler taught me that if you pay attention to your experience uh, properly, then short story ideas should not be uh, uh, mm. rare. Mm. They should be fairly uh, frequently found uh, because she's got the trick. She has a lot of great short story ideas. Mm. And, yeah. and uh, so I paid attention to what she was doing. And she has a quite beautiful story about what did the Booth family do after John Wilkes Booth mm. assassinated yes. Lincoln? Yeah. Uh, Booth goes. Yeah. Well, that's just one of the best stories that she's done and that our genre has done. That's a quite beautiful story. And I guess it's just historical fiction. I mean, it's not science fiction in any way, shape, or form. But it comes from a science fiction writer, so we love it for that. There's a, there's a kind of, there's a characteristic science fiction moves in, 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 in that yes. story. Yes, yes. Uh-huh. And I think... And, and this is because this comes up with, with Kelly Link. It's going to come up um, with uh, it's going to come up with Neil Stevenson. This new the, there's a certain choreography of science fiction that is recognizable, even if the events happening are not. Uh, and I agree, but uh, let's follow that. I mean, what would you? How would you characterize those strategies? I think I, I, don't, I don't think you can characterize them globally. I have to look at individual. Mm-hmm. Um, Individual moves. One one science fiction short story move that is not very often seen in uh, realistic fiction is this, a sudden temporal jump that can do imply all sorts of things. You do it at the end of Lucky Strike. Mm. Uh, there's a uh, Liz Hand does it quite a bit. Where you're, you're in the middle of a story and there's a break, and then the next paragraph begins ten years later. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. And by and large, that just implies a whole world, which is that in implying that world is what science fiction does well. Occasionally you'll see something like that in a mainstream story, um, but it still has a science fictional effect. I think that's what I'm getting. Mm-hmm. There are lots mm-hmm. of mainstream mm-hmm. stories. There are probably even Catherine Manfield stories that you come out of with a vaguely science fictional feeling because of the narrative moves that happen within it. I'm not sure I could... Mm-hmm. I, but I bet I could. I bet if I thought about this a lot, I could come up with a list of these things. Yeah, and I, 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 I think you're right. There is a, and maybe it is this uh, um, temporal, the jumpiness, the, the mm. ability to think in terms of decades and centuries that, you know, in science fiction terms, supposedly, a century is as nothing. Mm. And, you know, that's a, that's a powerful statement. A storyteller that is really master of time and space, mm-hmm. uh, that's a science fictional thing. Um, Which also requires that extrapolative urge you know, it, you know which is a, a fundamentally science fictional thing you know there, there's no mo- sort of it le- by leaving you to connect the dots if you like without ever doing it you know it's a fundamental sort of science fictional urge I think yeah I think there's a well you're talking about the narrator's point of view mm. I think that there's a science fictional kind of narrator which you see even in, again in realistic novels yeah. at, at the end of the novel you will have a, a brief description of what happened to the characters in their 40s and 50s and 60s, and you realize, okay, that has to be in the future. It's never acknowledged as being in the future, but uh, even in Mystic River is a good example, Dennis Lehane, mm-hmm. very good novel. And there's a, there's a passage early in that, uh, just before the girl is about to be murdered, and um, she goes off with her girlfriends, and, and then they get out of the car, and she drives off in the car by herself. And Lahane at that point, now this is a contemporary setting in the novel, contemporary to the reader, and Lahane at that point writes a couple of amazing paragraphs about uh, 40 years later she will be a soccer mom and she will be, you know, 
going to the uh, game and she'll be standing on the sidelines and will have this odd feeling and she'll think about her friend's name. Mm. And then she goes through the entire life in a paragraph of each of these girlfriends who don't even appear in the novel again. Mm. But if you back off and think, he's writing science fiction at that point. He's writing about incidents that are taking place 30 and 40 years after the incidents of this novel, which are contemporary incidents. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a... That is a science fictional movie because of the time travelish aspects. And uh, Holly, Molly Gloss in uh, The Hearts of Horses, which is set in the last winter of World War One in Oregon, mm-hmm. uh, has a similar thing where as you read that novel, which is telling you what happened in the winter of 1917, 1918, um, the narrator is clearly... Uh, it, well, it isn't clear. You are 30 or 40 years in the past. Mm-hmm. And eventually, by the end of the novel, I don't think you can be sure, but you can guess that one of the children portrayed in the novel is actually the narrator of the novel in their old age, which mm-hmm. Molly confirmed for me. Well, this is an interesting kind of device, but I think it's the kind of thing that a science fiction writer thinks of. Mm-hmm. Let's play with chronology and give you a deep-time mm-hmm. perspective, like deep focus that, mm-hmm. that certain uh, movie directors like. or The... Uh, the the whole uh, uh, she tells the story carefully enough that you begin to understand that the narrator's speaking in the 1950s and mm-hmm. it sort of has to be and that's kind of neat because the novel appeared in 2010 or whatever so or, 20, or 2005 well that, that, that's what I mean about uh, the, 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 actually the new Richard Matheson novel does the same thing it's uh, it's a memoir it's, of, uh, it's, it's an aging horror writer in the 80s remembering something that happened to him in 1950 1718. Wow. Um, so it, it becomes complicated in all kinds of ways because clearly, it, yeah, it's a 2010 novel which is set in the 80s with a narrator who is remembering something and you don't know if he's reliable anyway. Mm-hmm. And, and then there's, and there's also, beyond the narrator, the, what Wayne Booth called the implied author. There's clearly a sense of somebody pulling the strings who is not the narrator. Ah, uh, wow, that's a, yeah, taking it back one more step. Well, Booth, I mean, Booth's idea was, that, you know, in the rhetoric of fiction, was that there are three, several steps there. The, the narrator is a creation of the of the implied author, and the implied author is a creation of the actual author. <laughs> yeah, in other words, yeah, you're presenting a version of yourself as an author. Yeah. Um, well, I like that because for me, the the more masks, the better. <laughs> <laughs> I, I find myself very, very bad and uncomfortable at writing nonfiction. And I can only do it by, once again, creating another kind of mm. narrator that just isn't me. I, I, I'm not at all comfortable with Stan Robinson uh, writing directly to uh, a readership. Uh, I can't seem to uh, conceptualize it properly. So my first act is to make a narrator, but I'm very much more comfortable making that narrator writing a fiction. Right. That this, the implied author can only do fiction. Yeah. <laughs> 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 It's a, it's a good way to think of it. Yeah. Well, I was just thinking, I mean, to bring us back to 2312, yeah. to be really kind of, well, first of all, to be reductive about it, is it your sort of Dos Passos meets Asimov novel? Yes, it is. 
um, uh, I think the Dos Passos method is uh, something that uh, novelists can look at and say, wow, that is a new form for the novel. It does things that other forms can't do. It, is, it can be contrasted to the first-person novel, uh, Huckleberry Finn, Catcher in mm-hmm. the Rye. I mean, some of these first-person novels are just amongst the best we have. But there's another way, mm. and that for science fiction writers attempting to uh, uh, portray a, a future culture, yeah. um, you need tricks to yeah. get that background culture in because you can't just say a Manhattan street and have mm-hmm. people call it to mind. Yeah. And you have if you what you do is the science fiction thing and talk about a Manhattan canal, which in, is what I do in 2312 and then you you have to yeah. a whole history is thrown out there in a science fiction way. And the more tricks you have the better and every once in a while yeah. the dos passos method uh, for science fiction I think is super appropriate and Bronner proved it cuz Stan mm. on Zanzibar is mm-hmm. quite a, an, a, an achievement. Um, it's a little ham-handed in the personalities of the characters, but the structure of the thing and the information and the world it portrays is scarily uh, prescient. I know. I've seen people on the web talking about what he missed, and, and that's almost irrelevant. I mean, you can just catalog... If you made a catalog of science fiction's misses, you would have basically the entire history of science fiction, I guess. Yes, exactly, yeah. Whereas his, if you cataloged everything that he got right in that, from the, the daily random violence and uh, yeah. you know, things that he had got out of the 60s and, and made into, and the sense of uh, omnipresent environmental distress and overpopulation, mm-hmm. well, it's, um, it's, it's, uh, he got a lot of things right. Yeah. It's funny, when you were, when you were talking about Asimov and, 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 uh, and Dos Passos, you've mentioned a couple of times the Lucky Star novels, and almost nobody has very much good to say about Asimov's. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I mean, everybody loves the Heinlein juveniles. Uh, you get more mixed feelings about Asimov, and then down, I guess down at the bottom you've got Donald Waldheim's The Secret of Saturn. <laughs> yes, those are. Well, you know, I um, I think of Heinlein and Asimov as being a little bit of a, uh, a prime binary pair, an mm-hmm. either or, and I'm an Asimovian and not a Heinleinian. Uh, and it, I think it has to do with the personalities, once again, of the narrators. That mm. I like Dr. Asimov, mm. cheerful, uh, mm. informative, uh, positive, uh, um, charming, yeah. and intelligent. And and I and Heinlein, although he is many different things, because he changes from book to book, uh, his narrator changes and, and mm. as he sees different things that he wants. But ultimately, the one that we ended up with, the kind of man in the high castle, the cranky mm. old genius, a pain in the ass, and a right-winger, I just... I don't see it. I don't like the novels. Uh, that I, I think Moon is a Harsh Mistress is a tremendous novel. And Starship Troopers, despite its um, bad uh, militaristic politics, is a very well-done novel. Uh, but other than that, I, I uh, and, and, a, and a solid handful of short stories, mm-hmm. I'm not a great fan of Heinlein and his windy ranting, of, you know, the cranky uh, expert on things. This is sort of the bad version of mm-hmm. what science fiction can become. Uh, Jubal in Starship, uh, no, in Stranger. Stranger, Stranger, Yeah, Yeah, that uh, character as Heinlein, or as the classic Heinleinian narrator of the later years. And I'm not even talking about the late. The late, the late. So so Asimov, uh, although not the greatest fiction writer, nevertheless was one of the great voices. uh, and, and, um, And a lot of his fiction is so clever. And mm-hmm. so he's he's sort of the the classic uh, good pole of golden age science fiction, the cheerful engineer, 
uh, and I, I just come down on Asimov's side. I like him more as a narrator. Yeah. So, well, and also you're right. He was he was an explainer and, and Heinlein avoided explanations as much as he could because of that. Yeah, uh, impl- implied world rule. <clears throat> and popular science writing is something that uh, it seemed to me was a, it was a feature of science fiction for a long time. It's certainly what Gernsback thought science fiction was supposed to be. So the info dump, and I <clears throat> I think you've said this before, and you're not the only one. The info dump is a feature, not a bug, in the yes. sense that yes. it's, it's, a, it's a strategy that you can use, but it doesn't necessarily mean that you fail to structure the story properly. Yeah, that, I agree with that. I, I, I think it um, it is a part of your material. It, it needs to be shaped. It's an opportunity for an art form mm-hmm. of its own, like you were talking about natural history writing and popular science right. writing. These can be put in fictional forms, and if it works, it can work. If What if the stakes are high? So the thing that you're explaining, like Asimov is explaining, mm-hmm. people are going to die unless we can double our time of transmission, mm-hmm. uh, of, of getting uh, radio uh, uh, information from Earth to Jupiter and, mm-hmm. and back. And everyone's going, well, speed of light, we're not going to be able to do that. And then someone says, well, but my Jewish grandmother, every time she's on the phone, I, I notice that both of them are always talking at the same time at once. And so they have dual transmission. And so suddenly they solve the problem. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. great. And people are <laughs> right. And so this is what Asimov is doing all the time, the clever solution and, yeah. uh, and the explaining of physical principles. And suddenly you realize that dual transmission is faster than just waiting for messages and going mm-hmm. back and forth. Uh, uh, he did that all the time. So his cleverness uh, was inventive in a plotting sense and in mm-hmm. a story sense, but he was also Mr. Explainer. His 300 yeah. books of... Right. And they're very good explanations, too. Um, his book on Shakespeare, tremendous. Mm-hmm. And I bet his book on the Bible, I mean, it didn't matter what he was... Uh, Processing, mm-hmm. he would read about it. He would process it into his idea of what was important in it, mm-hmm. and his judgment was good, and his prose was super clear. Yeah. So often, his nonfiction books on a subject are the best you could get in that era. Some, you know, it'd be so great to read Asimov on quantum computing. I know because he used to do the column for uh, FNSF, I guess. <clears throat> that was the only science reading I did regularly. I didn't read Scientific American, well, and when I would pick up a Scientific American. It seemed impenetrable compared to what Asimov had been telling me. And he often would have given you what you needed to know mm-hmm. as soon as it came out. Yes, yes, he was... Um, uh, um, I mean, I, I feel that he spent too much of his life sitting in a room reading and typing, and that's why he didn't live very long. It, it was a too sedentary of a life. Because he was an unbelievable reader and writer. I, I can't imagine how many hours he must have put in for 400 books. I mean, it's what he did. Yeah. Well, he woke up in the morning, he wrote. <clears throat> I think one of the things that shows, and he talks about that, actually that last uh, autobiographical thing he did, I, Asimov, yeah. when he really kind of comes out of his shell and, and, and he expresses his, uh, you know, his agoraphobia, all the kinds of, his, his resentments against other writers, yeah. which he re- suppressed from the first two uh, volumes of, of autobiography, which are, I mean, one of the, but they, but even those uh, not very informative autobiographies, in some ways, those are the least introspective autobiographies you could read anywhere. Yeah, it was just a challenge for him to make an incredibly boring, uneventful life fascinating to read, and it was. Yeah, you start reading and you start, oh my God, <clears throat> worrying about the fact that he has to refold the New York Times at his dad's shop so that somebody will buy it, and it doesn't look like it's been read. Uh, and, and tiny details like that, page after page after page, and pretty soon you're hypnotized, and then pretty soon you realize nothing ever happened to this guy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. 
It's a it's the the New York writer life, uh, and he had a little bit of white room syndrome, which is what I call the people who spend too much time writing and not enough time uh, living. But the, the, what saved him was his judgment, his native uh, mm-hmm. judgment from his childhood was good, so that he could, uh, for a guy in a white room, could read, and then his reinterpretations were nevertheless. Um, interesting and had a, a validity because I think of his uh, native uh, mm. judgment and wisdom and he was lucky because he did like you say not much happened to him but he was able to uh, abstract from what he saw to make useful uh, useful books out of it why do you think he's fallen out of fashion well I wonder if the edge if if all of that of what we've all been saying uh, somewhat makes him a, a person in a time and place, yeah. and that uh, he wasn't the greatest artist in terms of mm-hmm. prose or, or, or depth of character, and that eventually we're going back to novels for for matters of style, character, and, uh, things that were not his forte. But I think, it, you know, he may have fallen out of fashion, and yet people will keep on coming back to iRobot and uh, Foundation and the cleverness involved. The yeah. <clears throat> Again, sometimes, maybe because he was such a an, an explainer, uh, and the foundation trilogy is essentially nothing but explanations. I mean, it is a it is an epic of explaining yes. the hero. Yeah. I, I taught that in uh, uh, a class once years ago, and I grew up reading it and thinking this is great. The whole you know uh, psycho history thing sort of makes sense. Uh, and back in the forties, every science fiction writer had some version of that. I mean, Van Vogt had Nexialism, yeah. you know. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. But a student pointed out after we had been discussing it for a half hour, do you realize nothing happens in this entire book? And I thought, well, actually, that's true. This book is a series of conversations about things that might happen or things that have ha- happened, but no action is portrayed almost anywhere. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. That's a, that in itself is a very dangerous narrative strategy, but on the other hand, uh, because he's reprocessing, you know, decline and fall of the Roman mm, Empire yeah. and putting it on a galactic scale, there's a certain gamesmanship going mm, on. Yeah. Once again, the cleverness involved is something that one admires. Uh, well, we're sort of coming to the end of this, but I thought I'd ask you one sort of question that sort of I think is relevant for twenty three twelve, particularly. Why is Starflight the barrier that you frame the solar system in? In the sense, I get the, the the book doesn't look outside the solar system, and I can't even think of an instance off the top of my head in your short in your fiction where you've ever stepped outside the solar system. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Is it because you don't think it's practical or possible, or because it's Im- you think it's important that we focus on the world we're living on and the immediate foreseeable future of that world? I think it's more that we're stuck with the solar system, that the distances are too great, and that science fiction has lied about that. And if you, if you um, renounce uh, hyperspace and faster-than-light travel in all of its forms... Uh, when you go back to the physics and the speeds of the starships we could conceivably make, mm-hmm. well, in 2312, they are, in fact, reprocessing uh, Pluto's moons, uh, Nix, uh, and I think Hydra, um, mm-hmm. uh, the little moons that are going around Pluto and Charon, into uh, starships. Mm-hmm. And they're simply like my Terraria, yeah. uh, the, uh, hollowed asteroids, but a particularly mm-hmm. good closed biological life support system. And that they trust, and they're going to fire it up to the f- fastest speeds they can get to, send it off to the stars, and they, by this time they've got some Earth analogs uh, mm-hmm. planets out there they think they can go to, 
I'm only only 20, 30 light years away. And then I, you run the calculations, and in the book they do this. Mm-hmm. How fast can we get one of these things to go? And then you think, oh, it's only going to take them 600 years. Yeah. And Because 20 light years does not translate to 20 years. Of course not. No. Because we can barely get to 2 or 3% of the speed mm-hmm. of light yeah, in yeah. any kind of realistic technology, and especially yeah. with a big object. So these starships are generation things, and then we can actually send them out like seed pods, but the practical human uh, lifetime scales, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, mean that they were going to be sending out seed pods like like plants do, with yeah. no expectation mm. of hearing back. You know, the the seed's going to blow away. Maybe it'll grow. Maybe it won't. But it is irrelevant to human history. Yeah. Which, uh, mm. but you can think of the solar system mm. as the neighborhood relative yeah. to that. It's a tiny little bubble of space. Yeah. So this is why I've played the game that way. I've always tried to do the science fiction as if a little realism is um, a good thing. Yeah. That I do it as what's possible and try to avoid the magic stuff. And now I have to say that's a little too strict and Puritan. That science yeah. fiction's for fun. Yeah. And when I had the idea of Galileo going to Jupiter's moons and the people in the year 3000 AD taking care of him and snatching him back and forth, I suddenly was into time travel and therefore into parallel worlds. Yes. Can't avoid it. Uh, I think once you get into time travel, as soon as you begin to push that, you begin to get into parallel worlds or nothing. Yeah. And so now I'm saying, well, let's, you know, don't be a Puritan about this. I mean, it's literature. You can play any game you want. I could write a fantasy novel where magic worked, and uh, I probably won't. Yeah, well. Uh, but uh, I also think that there is a kind of science fiction that is still the art of the possible. Yeah. And that's what I've been pursuing in most of my projects. I mean, I guess The Years of Rice and Salt is a reincarnation novel in yeah. this way. So. Yeah. I've done certain kinds of magic, and I'm much more open to um, these things than I am before. But I don't think I ever will go out into the galaxy. I think just as a statement that, unless I do a generation starship, but then again, that's been done so well before. Yeah. Well, yeah. I, I would, I would be, uh, I, I would, in the way that great science fiction novels are like skyscrapers in Manhattan, and sometimes. Um, a really good science fiction novel mm. will simply f- make a shape that you don't want to just imitate. So you're not going to build a second Chrysler building you know, no. in Manhattan. It would be a, it would be a, a strange effort, mm. like a Borges effort. <laughs> um, but and I'm just what I mean to say is that Gene Wolfe's um, Nightside the Long Sun, his Long Sun uh, Quartet, and then the trilogy that follows it is a most astonishing achievement. One of the great... Uh, and there's also other good, great Starship novels. Uh, Molly uh, mm-hmm. Gloss's The Dazzle of Day and right. uh, Brian Aldiss's mm-hmm. uh, uh, Nonstop, Nonstop. And, and, and Heinlein's Universe. And these are I was just, going to say they're going back to 1941, I think. Yeah, those are fantastic. Good. <clears throat> but you're absolutely right. And again, there's, there's a limited number of moves you can make. Yeah, and they've been made so well. They have. And the Wolf novel, I, I, I mean... I like all of Gene's novels, uh, almost. Uh, I mean, I, I like, um, you know, 30 out of 33. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and some of them are spectacularly great. But I think the, the the Book of the New Sun is somewhat overshadowed the Book of the Long Sun in people's minds. And I would say that just for my own personal uh, uh, enjoyment of reading, that the, the Book of the Long Sun in Silk is just... a uh, even, even I'm even more fond of it. I think one of the things that slows people down is the assumption that you have to read 
all four volumes of the Book of the New Sun before you can tackle anything. Yeah, I think that's right, and that certainly isn't necessary. It's not necessary. Not with the Long Sun. You can jump right into that. I never yeah. saw that you had to. If if I hadn't been told by outside readers, <laughs> you know, if Clute hadn't explained everything, <laughs> right. I wouldn't necessarily have put the two in the same storyline. I, I, because yeah. the book, the Earth of the New Sun, that fifth volume, right. is so uh, uh, wild that uh, I would have to read it a few more times to comprehend the history that it's uh, telling me. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I don't know how the long sun relates to that. I thought the Earth of the New Sun was rather apocalyptic. I mean, the new sun actually comes, I, yeah. I, as I understand yeah. it. Yeah. Wild, visionary literature, as, as great as anything we've got. Uh, so I, mm-hmm. I'm not going to do Starship stories, no. No. Well, on that note, with 2312 coming out next May, yes. mm-hmm. thank you very much, Stan Robinson. Well, thank you, Jonathan. Thank you, Gary. <clears throat> And we'll talk again soon. Soon.